Hi, and welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I am Brady Brewer, uh, and I am faculty in the Department of Agricultural Economics here at Purdue University. And joining me today is one of my colleagues, Dr. Alan Gray, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Food and Agricultural Business. I'm excited to have him on the podcast here today. He has over 20 years of experience working with food and agricultural businesses in, in the supply chain. Uh, today's podcast focuses on an article that uh, Dr. Gray just wrote, uh, you know, thinking about the issues of, of how COVID-19 has impacted the, the food and agricultural uh, value chain and some of the implications we are seeing from that. I think that we'll learn as, as we discuss this matter further. There's a lot more questions that we have answers at this point, but it's still interesting nonetheless. So you can just real quick before uh, I turn it over to Dr. Gray, I just want to make a point. You can find the article that he wrote that we're referencing in this podcast um, on the Center for Food and Agricultural Businesses website, which is agribusiness.purdue.edu. And then you want to click on the blog link up at the top. And the blog title is The Potential Learnings and Changes for a Post-COVID-19 Food and Agribusiness Industry. So with that, Dr. Gray, do you want to uh, introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Sure. Uh, as Brady said, Alan Gray uh, from Purdue University. I've been here 21 years teaching in the Agricultural Economics Department. Uh, I was the director of the Center for Food and Agricultural Business for about uh, 10 years, and now I'm the executive director of the center, uh, moving away from day-to-day -day operations, but still continue to provide strategic direction in the Center for Food and Ag Business and teach a lot in executive education programs, work with agribusiness industries all over uh, the country, and I teach business strategy both in uh, uh, the undergraduate and the graduate program. Uh, so the blog post you wrote uh, centers around you know, some of the changes we're seeing and a lot of the questions that are arising uh, from the current pandemic, you know, the COVID-19 uh, and what we're seeing. Obviously, uh, doc, our colleagues, Dr. Jim Minter and Dr. Jason Lusk uh, did a podcast last week on, you know, specifically to the meat industry, but there's a lot more broader implications that's happening out there. We're seeing shifting supply chains. Uh, companies are having to move quickly to be able to find new customers. Just, you know, this is a pretty hot topic right now, and we have a lot to discuss. So, you know, do you want to kind of start off with what's, what's your sense of the, what's happening out there in, you know, in the supply chain, some of the linkages, some of the issues they're facing, um, you know, that, that they're going to have to overcome here in the near, near future? Probably the biggest issue right now, it seems to me like, is um, the food industry's uh, supply chains are really separated in two main streams, the institutional uh, sort of uh, food, ser food service-based side of the industry and then the food retail or grocery store side of the industry, if you will, and I, and I think the major impacts that happened uh, early and continue to be really disruptive have a lot more to do with the fact that uh, with the institutional side of the food supply chain, uh, schools being closed, universities being closed, uh, actually hospitals being at lower than uh, capa lower capacity than normal, actually, uh, because so many of the things that are around uh, uh, elective surgeries and things like that have reduced food demand in the hospitals. And, and on top of that, of course, restaurants uh, running at uh, substantially below capacity, if not closed completely, ha have completely shut down uh, much of that side of the food supply chain, which is actually a separate food supply chain from sort of uh, food retail in the grocery store area. 
So I, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot and I see a lot of people asking that question about, you know, why can't the food just get redistributed? Why, why are the supply chains so separate? I mean, I, I see the, the Cisco and the U.S. food trucks that, that deliver to restaurants all the time. Why can't they just be rediverted to, to the Kroger's and Walmarts of the world? Is, is there an economic reason for this or? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of different things that are going on there, you know, uh, it, so the economic side of this is what we call transactions costs. And there's a high transactions cost of switching from one supply chain to the other. They're not a normal uh, set of customer bases, right? Cisco serves this particular set of customers. They'd have to uh, now uh, have realignment with a set of customers in the Kroger's and the Walmarts and the Costco's of the, of the area. That's a high transactions cost associated with doing that. There's also regulatory issues associated with that. Uh, there's packaging issues, right? So Cisco's used to delivering uh, uh, box loads of stuff to restaurants. That's not the same way that the grocery store uh, industry accepts uh, uh, the foods that, that, that come through that system. So you'd have to redo the packaging line. So, you know, there's just, uh, it, it's not like a switch where you just say, oh, well, I'll stop delivering it to uh, the Burger Kings of the world, and instead I'm going to start delivering it to the Kroger's of the world. It just doesn't work that way. Certainly there are uh, uh, attempts in the industry to try to figure that out, but we, we, we are, are um, a long way from that. And even if, Brady, we'd switch to that, even if you've got more of a switch than you currently have, it's still a dramatic drop in demand from the current demand uh, uh, position in that marketplace. So one of the topics I've, I've seen thrown around a lot is this concept of resiliency because I, I, you know, resiliency is something I've looked at in the past and it's, uh, in some instances, it's really hard to define. And if you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different opinions on what resiliency actually means. Uh, but how does that concept of, of a resilient supply chain play into what we're seeing right now? Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things that you're seeing uh, happening in the markets would suggest that we're not nearly as resilient as we'd like to be in certain areas, right? So I think about resiliency uh, with respect to the acronym FAT, F-A-T, right? To be resilient, you need to be flexible, adaptable, and tolerant. Right. So you got to be flexible to the situation. You got to be adaptable to things that are happening on the fly and you have to be tolerant. That is, the system has to continue to work despite shocks that happen to them. Right. So uh, where you where do you see something that's not uh, doesn't seem to be reflecting resilience at the moment would be uh, the uh, meat supply chain and the packers. Right. It's very clear at the moment that high concentration of uh, animals slaughter into large facilities is highly efficient, uh, allows us to have meat uh, readily available and cheap in normal times, but it is not resilient, right? Once we start closing down that capacity because of shocks like uh, COVID-19, uh, we see relatively quickly that we're not nearly as capable of being tolerant of shocks. That is, the system really begins to shut down relatively quickly. So, uh, and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in these marketplaces happening right now is this test of whether or not efficiency is resilient. Yep. Right? We have this trade-off between those two things. Well, and when it... 
when it's efficient, I, as a consumer, I am very much appreciative of, of the efficiency, right? Like this is what allows us to go and get the dollar menu 99 cent hamburger. Uh, you know, my, my wallet greatly appreciates the efficiency uh, when it actually works. But what I'm hearing you say is that because of this efficiency, we've, we've created a system that when, when you have one of these shocks like we're currently seeing, it breaks down because there's not a built-in safety net. Um, because as we know, you know, going back to those transaction costs, there's a cost to having that type of, of safety net in place in, in the system. And obviously the, the companies there were not willing to bear that cost. Um, but, but I think this also brings up a whole other issue of, you know, this is, you know, if a uh, black swan event, I, I've heard that term thrown out um, a lot too. So for the listeners, you know, black swans are those uh, events that you, you don't see very often, right? So it's hard to plan for. So how does, you know, should the companies plan for these black swan events? Is, is that part of their directive? That's a whole nother topic of conversation that, that adds a, an extra layer here. Yeah, I think um, the answer to that question in my mind, as I've sat and thought about this now for a while, uh, is the short answer to that, Brady, to me is no. I mean, look, if you uh, put your business together in a way that tried to plan completely for COVID-19 or this type of a pandemic to happen, by the time the pandemic happened, your business is probably not in existence anymore. You've gone out of business. So that means maybe we can't prepare for every single contingency of what might happen out there. But what we can do is take a look at our our uh, company with respect to, well, uh, I think we ought to think of it in terms of our, our industry, our company, uh, our leaders, and our people, right? Each of those areas and start to say, okay, uh, where are the places where they're likely to be bottlenecks? Where are the places where they're where, uh, in our industry, where they're likely uh, places where our uh, company is not as flexible as it could be because we've made decisions that make us a little less flexible. It doesn't mean that we, we make the decision to say, okay, we're going to become flexible. It just means that we're preparing for these are the things that are likely to happen should something like a black swan event happen. And we, in our minds, are prepared to think about, okay, what should we do about that? And, and 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 so there's this sort of balancing act of saying, okay, we're not going to uh, position our company to be completely uh, resilient in all particular situations, but we are going to at least do the mental exercises, the scenario planning, the war gaming, if you will, to think about, okay, if things were to happen, where are we likely to face uh, uh, the biggest challenges? And we'll be prepared then uh, for how to deal with those should they come along. Yeah, is there, you know, there's just so many questions around, you know, what to do and stuff like that. And I've seen a lot of proponents thinking about the, the globalization versus localization. Obviously, in the meat industry, there's a lot of criticism around the, the concentration. And if the industry wasn't as concentrated as it was, we wouldn't be seeing some of these issues as well. But, I mean, that's, that's more of an industry-wide collaboration problem. That's not necessarily one particular company's issue um, to solve. Um, so maybe there's a place for the consumer to step in and, and direct dollars to more local, uh, foods or something like that. I don't know. There's just, we're going to be studying this for, for the next years to come on, on potential ways that we could have mitigated some of the issues we're seeing. Cause I mean, personally, I was in the grocery store this weekend and there was, I mean, they had ground beef, but if you wanted um, a certain cut of steak, 
they were they were out of, of most of them, and it was pretty scarce, and that was with rationing. Well, and I think these sort of examples like you bring up do, I think, likely is raise awareness amongst the consumers of you know, our, the complexities of our food supply chain and, 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 uh, you know, what it takes to put that food on the grocery store shelf, which, you know, uh, what we hope is most of the time consumers take that for granted. I think that's what we try to do in our industry is make sure that consumers do in fact take that for granted, right? We, 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 you know, you might read in Twitter sphere that, well, if the consumer doesn't understand what we do in our industry, but actually that's what we try to do. Our industry is trying to make it so they don't understand it in the sense that they just go about their daily lives and have their food. Well, now we're raising that awareness amongst those consumers of how complicated this industry really is and what it takes to, to you know, make it um, uh, to make it work. And that, that comes with uh, goods and bads associated with it, right? I think that uh, having our consumer more aware means that they're going to even ask more questions of the industry about what we do and how we do it. Uh, I think th- I've always thought that's a good thing to have our consumers wanting to know more about what's happening with their food. But uh, it puts us under a spotlight to, to really uh, think about, you know, what it is that we do to prepare that food. So. The other thing that you raised, you raised, I think is important here is to think about things like, you know, over time in our industry, our supply chains have ultimately, uh, they've gotten longer. The longer supply chains are actually more efficient, right? That is that we're buying stuff, uh, inputs from from further away. Uh, We're exporting foods to away places where uh, we sort of have this, you know, this economic life for everybody to specialize in the things that they're most efficient and effective at producing. You know, the old adage, if you don't want to try to produce pineapples in, in uh, North Dakota, so you're going to ship those from Hawaii, right? It's a long yes. supply chain. But what, what we've discovered in these long uh, supply chains is that they're not always that resilient. And that's where I've kind of written in my article there a little bit about, you know, are we going to see some shortening of those supply chains uh, which might look more like uh, local uh, sourcing types of activities. You know, it's not uh, uh, it's not just uh, obviously just um, food oriented. I mean, the hospitals have discovered this pretty quickly, right? We're just we're relying awful lot on on supplies at the hospitals that actually are from very long supply chains. Whether we're talking about getting that uh, supplies from China or Eastern Europe or wherever we may be getting those supplies from, suddenly we start start to figure out that it's efficient and effective when it's working. But when it gets disrupted, it really creates uh, quite a challenge for us. Yeah, I, I think that was ever more apparent when I was in the grocery store this weekend. And you know, normally I'm like, oh yes, the the frozen pizza I want is the the sausage pepperoni with the cheese stuffed crust. And this weekend I was just like, oh great, there's there's frozen pizza here. I didn't care what variety. Yeah, it, there was just the fact that it was frozen pizza. Um, so we're definitely having to shift a little bit on the on the consumer end, and I think that preferences on the consumer end may change as well from this. Um, especially, you know, the food away from home. Uh, I think the statistic I've been seeing is that before this all started, fifty four percent of of food was consumed away from home, and that has definitely drastically shifted. Um, not just where we consume, but our preferences as well, um, you know, how we eat. Definitely a lot to consider on the supply chain side. And, and not only you mentioned the, the distance that the food travels as well, but also the amount of processing, right? The, the amount of economic value add that has gone into the supply chain, you know, how companies take 
you know, grains of corn or, or wheat or, or soybeans and it, it gets turned into crackers or other value added products. The, not only have we added the distance, but we've added more, more layers in the supply chain as well that's complicated things um, in this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, what I find interesting about that at the moment, we'll see how this works out over time, right? But I, it, it seems as though as people have moved away from food away from home and started to eat more food at home, we've sort of gone back to the traditional uh, comfort food frame of reference, right? So, you know, before COVID-19, a lot of food at home is um, uh, more in the vein of fresh, not frozen, of less processed, of uh, more organic, so forth and so on, right? Uh, and perhaps what we've seen, I don't know this for sure, but what it seems as though we've seen is that 54% of people who used to eat out aren't eating out anymore. So they eat at home. And what are they eating at home? They're eating crackers and chips and uh, uh, Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of processed foods. So it, it feels like we've moved back towards that. I think, uh, you know, wheat prices, for example, is a good example. Suddenly there's this huge run on pasta. Well, uh, before COVID-19, pasta was in a downturn, right? Nobody wants to eat gluten. Let's stay away from gluten. But then you, you, nobody eats out anymore. And suddenly they're eating at home. And, you know, maybe I don't know how to cook anything except spaghetti. So that's what I'm going to eat. Uh, it's really kind of been an interesting sort of uh, uh, twist on demand for foods to me in, the, in, this, uh, in this shift. And will it stay that way? I don't know. I, I will tell you that I, I, my sense is this. We won't be back at 54% uh, food away from home for a substantial period of time. That's going to take a while. Right? I don't know how long. You, know, you never know for sure how long uh, uh, to try to put a date on something. But I think it's going to be a while that we're going to be eating food at home. And, and two things, two reasons for that. One is, you know, the safety. The consumer wants to feel safe when they go out to eat. And two, they've spent a better part of two months now learning how to cook at home. And, and learning uh, about food at home and, and, and sort of changing the routine. And, and, and so that's going to be an interesting thing to see how uh, long it takes before that comes back. Yeah, and not only that, but consumption patterns uh, due to fear, not, not just knowing what to cook, but when I go to the grocery store, uh, the salad section is typically pretty well stocked or, you know, the fresh fruits and vegetables section because, um, you know, some people are scared that, okay, that, that tomato has been touched by someone that, that, you know, so there's a higher risk in, in that part of the grocery store as well. So that's, that's also driving the, the, the demand for more boxed, uh, sealed foods, um, in the grocery store. Well, and I think, uh, even, even as much as that, Brady, one of the issues is that, you know, in this pandemic, people don't want to go to the grocery store often. They want to go periodically, right? My, my wife, uh, she would prefer not to go. She wants to go to the grocery store every two weeks. She doesn't want to go any sooner than that, right? The more times you go, the more likely it is to have a problem. Plus, if you're in places where you got high restrictions, you may be waiting in line to get there. So you just don't want to 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 go very often. Well, fresh fruits and vegetables are not. I mean, you can't keep them, right? They don't stay for two weeks in your house. Uh, so so you tend to not buy as many of those because you know you're not gonna you're not gonna have them for two weeks anyway because they won't store. And, and so that that's, uh, I think, a big part of that problem also with respect to, so what you've seen is sort of this shift towards 
more shelf-stable types of fresh fruits and vegetables. So bananas, for example, have done pretty well. Uh, apples have done pretty well. Those are things that are a bit more storable, right, than lettuces that won't store very well or tomatoes that won't store very well. So those are uh, uh, sort of interesting parts of that uh, of that current impact. It, you know, that might go away as you ease the uh, as you ease up on the impacts of the pandemic, and people can go to the grocery store more often again. But it certainly had a huge impact there. I think it's one of the things I want to make sure that we did talk about during this time period is, you know, we're here in the Midwest at Purdue, and we think a lot about corn and soybeans. What's happening with corn and soybean farmers? But the fresh fruit and uh, vegetable producers. Uh, out in the western part of the U.S. and, and the uh, fruitful rim all the way around, actually, they're highly impacted by this, right? But one, they're heavily uh, dependent upon that institutional side of demand that just immediately disappeared. You know, uh, uh, Taylor Farms, for example, is one of the largest fresh fruit uh, and ve- fresh vegetable producers in the country. Uh, their demand dropped 80% in a week. <laughs> what do you yep. do when your demand drops 80% in a week? Because you know, and that's because why? Well, they they primarily serve fresh vegetables. They're they're the country. They're known as the the U.S.'s salad maker, right? But they do those salads mostly for that institutional demand and and uh, restaurant side of the business, and and uh, it just disappeared on them. Plus. It's also the vegetables they produce are the ones that don't have the same shelf st- uh, stability to them. So uh, even in the uh, as people buy more food to come home, they didn't buy a lot of extra lettuce uh, uh, or salads, right? So that's been an interesting uh, and that's a tough place to be if you're in a company like that. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. Who prepares for an eighty percent drop in their demand? Nobody can prepare for that, right? Yeah, um, no, that's in, in, in to parallel that I saw pictures of onion farmers uh, that had semi truckloads that they were dumping on the ground uh, because, you know, those onions simply went to restaurants and, you know, people were saying, well, you know, I'm cooking at home. I use onions, but you don't realize the difference in, in ingredients and stuff between food away from home and food at home. Um, just a huge, huge shocks to the the supply chain or that eighty percent drop as well. So I, I guess I kind of want to get into. So if if you're a food processor, what are you looking at right now? I mean, if you're a grain processor or you know, take the fruit and vegetable example, what what are you thinking about in the short run? Are you thinking about recouping some of that lost demand? Are you thinking about scaling back in the near future? What are the issues that the agribusiness supply chain? Or, or, you know, some of these decisions that they're facing. The number one concern has to be is, uh, and they're and they're dealing with it now is the safety of their people. Right, that's the number one concern is the safety of people. Uh, once you have a position uh, where you have where you know that your people can be safe, uh, and and still provide uh, food, you know, provide your products to the countryside, you have to. You have to then, uh, I think, move to the financial and economic side of the business. And, and, and ultimately, right now, that's about cash flow, right? You've got, you know, what do you do? What can you do to maintain uh, uh, a reasonable amount of cash flow? So what do we have to do in an environment like this to manage cash flow? You know, I think the first thing you do is you make sure that you are uh, communicating um, uh, regularly, uh, one with your lenders and your banking uh, institutions to make sure that they're aware where you are, what you're doing, what your plans are, 
and you understand where they are and what they see and how they're uh, prepared to to help you through this time period. Uh, two, depending on how large you are, of course, uh, thinking about where's the government intervention or opportunities for for assistance from from the government uh, to help with these cash flow issues. Uh, the third thing you want to do is, uh, you know, talk to your suppliers. Where are your suppliers with respect to uh, their expectations of you? Uh, with respect to, uh, you know, if you if you've ordered supplies, if you've if you've uh, been in early order buy programs, or you've got, uh, uh, you know, commitments that you put on the books that maybe you don't now need, what's the chances to renegotiate with those suppliers, uh, and and uh, look for ways to partner to say how do we get through this together? That's the uh, that's the third place that I would look, and then. Uh, and then, you know, uh, beyond that, then you have to start thinking about, um, uh, as many companies have, uh, furloughs and right sizing with respect to the number of employees you can keep uh, uh, in the business and, and working. And how do you think about uh, uh, doing that in a way that maintains some level of flexibility? You know, because one of the challenges you've got, Brady, is that uh, as you scale back uh, to meet the lower demand that you may have now, uh, it could just as easily by mid-fall come back and it's back to full full capacity. Well, what's happened to your talent in the process of uh, 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 this downsizing that you didn't need to re-upsize? Do you have uh, ability to get those people called back? Uh, and are you thinking through those pieces? So those those are sort of the elements of what I think uh, we have to do. And, you know, number one, safety. Number two, talk to the banks. Number three, look at uh, assistance that's available out there. Number four, talk to your suppliers. And then five, we got to right size for the situation that we're in. Yeah, and those those sound simple when you list them like that. But those are some monumental tasks for some of these companies that they have ahead of them over over the next few months. Um, and I'll throw another thing on there. Um, you know, when you think about the digitization of, of the ag supply chain, um, my opinion is, uh, and you touch on this in your blog article, uh, this is going to accelerate uh, the digital technology adoption in the ag supply chain. If you think about ag relative to other industries, we have typically been a very relationship-based uh, uh, supply chain, uh, especially as you get closer to the farmers. Relationships matter. Um, you know, whether you're a crop protection company selling your products to farmers or, or ag retailers, um, or you're one of those ag retailers in that relationship with the farmer, that is critical. Now that we have all these social distancing uh, protocols in place, that that those human relationships now become a lot harder harder to maintain and foster, and they have to go digital. Um, what what is your opinion? Do you think there's we're going to see increased adoption, and and how will technology play a role in this in agriculture and the moving moving forward? Well, it's really interesting, Brady. Over the last uh, six weeks, I've been in a number of different meetings uh with for example uh cooperative boards of directors right so these are farmers uh in these board of directors and they are all connecting via zoom and having conversations uh and and uh, technologically quite capable of, of doing just fine with connecting right and that's uh i think a growing experience base for that customer group to say, hey, these are things that we can do relatively easily. 
I, and it's interesting because not only just the farmer meetings, but many meetings I've been in that I don't think, uh, and I've had meetings with um, many different uh, executives from different companies over the last six weeks too, that I would not have had those meetings with them, except that they're at home, they're social distancing, they're not traveling, they're not on airplanes. So they have a little more time on their hands and they're now meeting, you know, all practically face to face via Zoom, like we're meeting here. And, and learning that this is a relatively efficient and effective way uh, to conduct business, if you will. And so the, the agribusiness executives I'm talking to are learning this, and the farmers are learning this at the same time. That to think that when we go back to whatever the new normal might look like, that we, that we will suddenly stop doing this seems unlikely to me. Right? People have learned a new way. Uh, to engage with each other that's relatively effective. I don't think it means that we'll never go back to meeting face-to-face. Of course, we'll, we'll still have that. But I think, you know, I talked to um, uh, one of my students, MSMBA students the other day, who's a salesperson for the uh, eastern part of the U.S. in the food ingredients business. And, you know, all of her meetings are now happening via Zoom. And she said, I think when we go back to normal, at least a third of the meetings that I would have normally traveled to, I won't travel for anymore, right? At least a third, maybe as many as a half of them I won't that's, travel for anymore. That's actually a lot higher than I would have predicted. I, I, I would have right? figured maybe 10, 15% max, uh, right. some of them, but, but not all. So you could visualize, right? You can visualize the farm saying, uh, increasingly the farmer saying, hey, I don't want people coming on my farm just randomly to talk to me. Uh, uh, you know, you schedule a meeting with me and we'll decide we may have that uh, via Zoom meeting and that'll be efficient and effective for me. I can control the time. We can control, I can control the amount of conversation we have, right? Uh, and occasionally we'll agree to say, okay, yeah, we probably need you on the farm here to, to, to have a visit about this. But there could be a lot more of that that happens via distance and we just don't go on the farm nearly as much as we used to. Now, I don't know that that'll happen, but I think there's a chance that that could could be happening. And that's a really interesting sort of dynamic. If you're a young, freshly graduated uh, Purdue undergraduate moving into a sales position, how do you get FaceTime with a farmer if uh, you don't go on the farm anymore? If the way these meetings happen is that they're mostly digital meetings. Wow. That's a difficult thing to do is uh, to figure out how you get these meetings with somebody when you don't, when, when you, uh, you know, you don't already have the relationship. What I've discovered is in my meetings with the agribusiness executives or the farmers that I talk to on Zoom, I'm having a relatively easy time with it as long as I know them. As long as I already have a relationship with them, it's not hard to get that connection with them. But if I didn't know them, I mean, what does a cold call look like on Zoom? I doubt that's going to happen at all, right? So I think there's those pieces of the relationship between agribusinesses and, and farmers that are likely to be uh, completely different than what, we're, than what we've seen in the past. And we have to really kind of think a little bit about what does that, what does that look like moving forward? Yeah, that's a very interesting scenario there. I mean, a, a sales cold call over, you know, over a web-based application. I don't, I don't particularly see that going very well, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's going to be tried at, at some point. Uh, 
So it will be interesting to see how companies tweak that and play around with that to make it work for, for them so they can forge that relationship with their clients. And not just to the farmer, but all, all the way through the supply chain as well as, as people forge relationships up and down you know, with their suppliers and clients. Uh, you know, that obstacle is going to have to be overcome. As you said, it works now because we have existing relationships. You can get on the call, you know, email someone because you already know them, you've met them. Uh, but that might be a lot harder when you're getting an email from someone you don't know. Yeah, the, the other thing I would tell you, Brady, that uh, a couple other things related to this digital thing that really struck me. One is uh, octogenarians are buying groceries online and have them shipped to their houses. They never bought anything before online ever in their lives, and now they're doing that. I mean, imagine that, right? Uh, my 87-year-old my grandmother's buying groceries online and have them delivered to her house. She never bought anything online before in her life. That, I mean, that's pretty amazing. But if you extrapolate that, well, farmers and their families are doing the same thing, right? And, and, and they've bought more online than they've ever bought online before. And that comfort level just continues to increase with the ability to buy online and and share the information you need to share in order to get the products that you need, whether you're talking about buying ag inputs or buying groceries or buying shoes or, you know, what I'm still trying to figure out is how you do e-commerce to buy a haircut. I haven't figured that part out yet, but uh, one day I'm sure somebody will into an e-commerce bought haircut. But, uh, but, you know, people are increasingly comfortable with this idea because they've had to be comfortable with it. And I think that changes the nature of, of, uh, 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 you know, the relationship with the farmer, uh, as it relates to e-commerce and e-business activity as well. So, so that's one area. And then the other thing that really strikes me is that how easy it has been for many of the farmers that I've been talking to, to get access to zoom and to, to be a part of these activities it tells me that many farmers have must have, uh, invested fairly well in, uh, their access to the internet. But their rural counterparts have not. Yeah. I mean, we've really been experiencing uh, this big, huge divide between the haves and the have-nots with respect to Internet access, information access. When you see uh, the rural schools uh, just here in Indiana, but it's all across the country where they've closed down the schools and now they're doing things via uh, distance-based teaching in the K through 12 schools and the way many of these organizations are having to do it, uh, you know, they've opened up Wi-Fi in the parking lot of their high schools because that's where so many people have to go just to get access yeah. to the information to do it. And, and uh, uh, just recently last week, a uh, partnership was uh, announced between Land Lakes and their uh, local cooperatives across the country where those local cooperatives have opened up their Wi-Fis to allow people to come, literally come in, drive into their parking lots, park in their parking lots to be able to get access to that uh, access to the internet, to be able to get to the things that they need to get to education and, and other information. And so I, I really think we uh, have raised some, uh, I hope at least we've raised some awareness of how problematic this, uh, lack of, uh, you know, access to information is ultimately what it boils down to because it's a lack of uh, a capacity to get people in rural areas. Internet access is, is pretty dramatic. And I guess I had thought I'd known all along that was the case, you know, we're teaching online in Purdue and we worry about the fact that we have students at Purdue that are rural. And so we want to be careful about how much bandwidth we ask of them. 
we've always talked about those sorts of issues. It struck me how much uh, that many of the farmers have been talking to haven't had that issue, which suggests they've made investments on their own in trying to figure out how to make sure they're connected. But then also recognizing that there's still that big divide, something I think as a country we're going to have to figure out how to deal with. Yep. So as we close up our conversation here, you know, one of the things that strikes me about all that we've talked about is we really cover the entire ag supply chain and there's not a single part of it that is not being affected by this closer to the consumer end. Grocery stores are having to rethink how they're selling stuff to the consumer. You mentioned your uh, 80 something year old grandmother who's now purchasing stuff online. That was almost unfathomable uh, a couple months ago. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, my grandpa doesn't have a, a smartphone, um, and I don't think he's gone to that measure yet, but he also lives in a pretty rural area um, and, and doesn't have to worry so much about keeping the social distance because it, it just happens naturally. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, but, you know, that affects those, those processors and those food manufacturers, uh, you know, because they're affected because of the shifting food away from home issues and the, the changing preferences and buying behaviors of consumers. So they're having to drastically redo their product mixes and their production facilities to, to meet this food at home need and what we're cooking. Uh, and that trickles all the way down to the farmer and what they grow. But then you have this extra layer of, of social distancing and, and technology and, and digitization uh, of how these ag input and ag retailers are connecting with the farmer as well. So there's just a lot of moving parts uh, and, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, I don't think we have any answers yet. We're seeing these companies attempt to to change pretty rapidly. But, you know, obviously, we, as we covered at the beginning, resiliency was not exactly built into the system to begin with because we were built to become highly efficient, uh, which, at, you know, 99 cent hamburger we, we typically like. But the resiliency is 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 happening that flexibility that fat concept you said we need to be flexible uh, we're becoming more flexible but it's taking some time how we emerge at the end of this is, is going to be really interesting to see uh, how this all shakes out over the next six to eight months um, because I, I think some companies will look uh, maybe not drastically different in, in terms of on the outside appearance but how they conduct business will be different in my mind yeah, I, I agree with you, Brady. I think one of the things that we, my, my thinking is that one of the things we're going to start to examine is some different metrics than we maybe have focused on in the past, right? There there are some clear things that the pandemic has shown us that suggest that uh, we have to think a bit more about uh, sort of common good activities, things that have uh, long-term benefits but short-term costs. And how do we get uh, metrics that allow us to measure what we're doing uh, that may have those short-term costs but will lead to longer-term benefits that may require us to do things that work together more? Uh, you know, I mean, clearly the globe has, has uh, record, the world has recognized that pandemics are a global issue and that we all have to work together to figure out how to manage these situations. You might say the same things about things like climate change, for example, right? Those are things that we could do now or can be costly, but have longer term benefits. There are many things like that that we have to begin to think about. And they're related to the idea of resiliency. Well, I think we're going to start to see our agribusiness firms think more carefully about some of these longer term metrics uh, of performance 
not just the short-term metrics of performance that will help us balance this efficiency argument against the resiliency argument. That's what I see happening as we move forward. So with that, we are out of time. Um, I I thank the listeners uh, for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more economic information, uh, please visit the Purdue Center for Commercial Ag's website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. If you're also interested in this article uh, that we referenced here today, you can visit the Center for Food and Agricultural Businesses website at uh, agribusiness.purdue.edu, and then you'll want to click on the blog tab at the top. And again, this article is titled Potential Learnings and Changes for a Post-COVID-19 Food and Agribusiness Industry. So with that, um, Alan, I thank you for being on today. Thank you, Brady. Pretty insightful. We have a lot of questions that are yet to be answered in the food and agribusiness supply chain, and it'll be interesting to see how all this shakes out here in the future. So on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and Dr. Alan Gray, uh, I'm Brady Brewer, and we thank you for listening. 